purpose of this morning and hopefully for all future mornings, we return to the cultivation and the unveiling of compassion. As the as it said of the Buddha Dharma as a whole, it's Nyingje Tsawachen, having compassion at its root. So if that's the root of Dharma, that of course should be the root of our Dharma practice. And yesterday, of course, what loomed large was what's appearing in the news right now. This, it's, I can't really imagine four, four million people trying to focus on one nine-year-old boy. That's quite overwhelming to imagine four million people. Very hard. Uh, one could say inconceivable. And so much suffering. So this, as we, um, as we couch this within the framework of the Buddha Dhamma, the suffering that's being experienced there by those who stay where the, where the conflict is, uh, in Syria and adjacent areas, uh, it's called blatant suffering, right? Manifest suffering. Physical suffering, when you're make, maybe being beheaded, or you're being shot, or you're being terrified. Oh. And even if not, there's a lot of fear and uneasiness, and then there's the, 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 the fear and the physical pain and the mental pain of those who are fleeing for their lives. And so blatant suffering, blatant suffering. And if we look for the cause of it, and this is what politicians do and military people do, journalists do, why, why is this happening? Why are four million people leaving home? You know, they're good at this. They, they can tell you they're very good at it. This is the strength of modernity. We know a lot about blatant suffering neurophysiologically, psychologically, socially, economically, environmentally, militarily, and so forth. So they're really, this is a strength of modern world, so we have to pay attention. Of course, it's this organization of ISIS that's really uh, creating this misery for other people. And they think, of course, that it's, it's all going to turn out well, that in fact uh, the misery is necessary to bring about a greater good. You know? That's what surgeons think, you know. I have to cut into you. I'm, har- I'm sorry, it's going to really hurt. It's going to hurt afterwards. But this is the suffering to bring about greater good. So ISIS is performing surgery, right? And expelling, uh, that is, if you don't like what the surgery is, then you can get out. Um, but I read a brief biography of the man who's the, the head of ISIS. Interesting fellow. Quiet, introvert, brainy, good at, very articulate. Um, but what's most important about him, as far as I can tell, is an absolute conviction that his understanding of Islam is perfect, it's supreme, and an absolute intolerance to anybody who disagrees with him. Now, of course, that's not unique. That's not unique at all. It happens in politics. It happens in atheism. It happens in all religions. It happens in philosophies. It happens all over the place. And this is why the Buddha spoke of zimba, this grasping onto one's own view, one's belief systems, one's perspectives, one's, all of that, as supreme as being one of the fundamental forms of delusion and therefore one of the fundamental fundamental causes of suffering. And what is it? And then grasping onto one's own discipline, one's own practices as supreme. That's also right there with grasping mind, and that's also a root delusion. Boy, it's, but it's interesting to see it so obviously true, you know, that behind all of this is a view. It's a thought, and it's being transmitted by information. And some people are flocking to the organization, 
relatively small numbers, but millions of people are fleeing. And the great irony here is most of them fleeing are Muslims, terrified by Muslims. You know? So this has gained a lot of attention, as it should. A lot of compassion is aroused, as it should. Help is on the way in various ways, as it should be. And this too will pass. There's a finite number of people in Syria. And after a while, the numbers will dwindle, just because there aren't that many. After four million people have left this pretty small country, how many more can flee before it's empty? So this will pass. Who knows when? I don't know whether it's one month or one year or six years, but sooner or later, this is not going to be in the news anymore. But another country will be. And if it's not ISIS, it will be another. If it's not Muslim, it will be, it will be this, it will be that, it will be that. And this never ends. This just never ends. Because it always perpetuates itself. As, hatreds, as, as the Buddha himself said, animosity is never quelled by animosity. Hatred is never snuffed out by more hatred. Hatred is only snuffed out by the absence of hatred. But again, I'm wondering why. Wondering why. Why? Why? Why are they doing this? And with such absolute conviction that it is according to the will of God, the supreme, the omnibenevolent, the all-compassionate, why do they think killing fellow Muslims as well as Christians and, of course, any European they can get their hands on? Why? And as the head and the many people who agree with him, because they're getting funding, they're growing, it's a growing organization, in exactly the same breath that they're holding onto their own view of supreme, uh, there is this intense hatred for views that are contrary to their own. There's an intense hatred for modernity. I have read some analysis. I'm no ex expert, but I can read. And there's an intense hatred for modernity. What kind of modernity? Because we're all living at the same time. So, oh, which modernity? Modernity of Tibetan, Tibetan nomads? No, they don't, they're not really particularly concerned about those. Eurocentric modernity. The, Euro, the European, Eurocentric modernity, because bear in mind it was Europeans, it was the English above all, it was the French, the Italians. Americans just weren't up to it yet. We would have been, we would have been hogs at the trough, but we just didn't have our act together as well in the 19th century. It took us to the 20th century to really flex our muscles and throw our weight around. But in the 19th century, the English, the French, the Italians, they really could. So they colonized the whole area. They just came in and took over. All of, all of Africa, all of the Near East. They dominated India. They took over Australia. They took over North and South America. This is one civilization, Eurocentric civilization. And it's driven by, fundamentally, our view as the supreme. Christianity is the supreme. And we'll just kill anybody who disagrees. And that's what we did. And there was, but then it was coupled hand in hand. When we see Cortez coming across, it was, we have the supreme view and we'll, we'll convert you or kill you. But we, in the meantime, by the way, we want your gold. I mean, really, it was in-your-face greed. In-your-face greed. We want your gold. Why did the British invade Tibet at the beginning of the 20th century? They were afraid they would have an economic, they would have, you know, economically challenged. They would maybe, you know, Russia would get in there. They came in and need to get in there. It was greed. It was greed. They just came and machine guns Tibetans down, thinking they had a right to come in. And it was greed. It was just greed. And so we see what the manifest suffering is directly related to hatred and violence and malice. But it's a reaction to greed. 
It's a reaction to Eurocentric civilization. It's something very new. I mean, those Palmyra, these ruins, had been around for more than 2,000 years. Nobody, and in, in Muslim countries, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and nobody thought they had to blow them up. You know, that centuries. The Buddha statues back in Afghanistan, they were out there for 2,500 years. Nobody thought about blowing them up until now. You know, the Taliban and so forth. That's a long time to show relative tolerance. I mean, they simply defaced them. But, you know, they didn't have to blow them up. So there's something really intense coming out. And the type of Islam that the head of ISIS wants, really wants to dom dominate the entire planet is the Islam, as he understands it, a very early Islam. In other words, before we ever happened, before modernity ever happened. He wants to roll back the clock and say, I would use a really foul expletive here, but basically screw all you, because everything you've done is awful, and we just want to destroy that and you if you get in the way, because we need to roll it back, because everything that's happened in the last 500 years is just catastrophically error. And we need to roll it back, oh, 1,500 years or so, give or take, to the early version, the pure version, and of course, his interpretation. And they'll kill anyone. They'll kill anyone. You have a choice to be killed or converted, or suppressed to the lowest tier of civilization. Those are your choices. Convert, be killed, or be willing, if you're a Christian, to be the, the dirt under the feet of the people who are in charge. The point here is not to go into a big political exegesis. I'm not a politician, I'm not a journalist, but there's something core Buddhist here. The hatred is coming out of response to greed. Right? Greed, which is attachment, corresponds to the second level of suffering. Right? The suffering of change. The suffering of change. It's the suffering that the British Ross was enjoying in the 19th century, the Victorian era, where everything is so wonderful. The, the sun never sets on the British Empire. I don't mean to pick on the British at all. Pick on the Americans, pick on the French, the Italians. You know, we've done this, just some are better at it than the others. And the British were very, very good at it. But that's enjoying the good life, and it's all driven by greed. It was economic imperialism, above all. Greed. That's where the good life is. And then materialism was created by the West, by the English, by Darwin, by T.X. Huxley, and then Marx, who was studying, doing all his work in the British Library. So materialism is kind of an English baby. And the Americans just, you know, leapt on it. And so we have this second, second level of suffering, the suffering of change. It's driven by attachment. That's explicit. It's in Buddhism. But then you have a, if you want to have a worldview that totally supports, encourages, absolutely protects your greed as justifiable, then materialism is the ticket. The materialist worldview is the worldview for greed. Because it suggests you're absolutely right, your happiness does lie out there, because the only thing that exists is what's out there. Matter and the emergent properties of matter. Even your brain's out there, and you're not anywhere at all, because you're a fiction. And the mind, oh, insignificant, forget it, maybe it doesn't even exist. And, so we, and then we have this materialistic worldview, and then full-bore, fully justified greed and hedonic values as one's value system. And then, of course, just consume the, consume the planet like a box of cookies. The faster, the better. And so if the, the growth of the GDP in China falls below 7%, we should start freaking out, because we're not eating the cookie box fast enough. It should be evident by a point that this is absolutely insane. And that's what ISIS is re responding to. They say they agree with me. Except for their strategies is different. 
But they agree. They agree. This is insane. And they've got a better idea. Take us back to the 7th century Islam. Because, you know, there aren't many whole choices there. Well, that's a better choice than this. They think either this or that. They go this and they'll kill anybody who gets in the way. So compassion then has to go beyond the episodes. If it's deep, it goes beyond the episodes of the Syrian crisis. It goes beyond the episode of the Tibetan crisis in the 1960s. Beyond the, you know, uh, there's just no end to episodes. It's one after another. It comes up. It's a wave of blatant suffering. It goes down. But what's continuous through all of this is the suffering that seems on the surface pleasant, the suffering of change. And it's that mixed-up notion that my happiness lies out there. You know. So in Tibet, in, in Tibet when people don't say, they don't have a word, I'm Buddhist, I'm Buddhist, they just say, nangbayi. Nangba means insider. Nang means inside, just like geluk, gelupa. Geluk tradition, gelupa is a gelupa person. Nang is inside, and a nangba is an inside person. What does that mean? Or does it mean the, the saved versus the infidels? No, it means I'm looking for happiness inside. <laughs> and if you're not a nangba, you're a chiraba. You're an outsider. You're an outsider, you means you're a Eurocentric asshole. <laughs> that kind of just jumped out. I'm not quite <laughs> sure where that came from. But asshole means you've got it totally confused. You know, that's one interpretation of asshole. That you're looking in the wrong place, idiot. And if you are sensible, you're an insider. A Christian insider, a Muslim insider. You could even be an atheistic insider. You know, you could, I mean, there are people who are embracing eudaimonia who are atheists. They don't believe in God. I don't believe in a lot of gods. You know, so, so we're going deeper. But now, again, we don't have a whole lot of time here. We're running out of time. So we can't stop there. But there is a level. We have Eurocentric greed it's shown by the, we took over the planet, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we took, and now you know, America's trying to throw it always its weight around, always its weight, ever since the Second World War. America's number one, the American century, as they say. So Britain had its century, it was the 19th, 18th century. The French and Italian, Portuguese and Spanish. Portuguese and Spanish back in the 17th century, 16th century. They were really, man, all of South America, not bad, you know. <laughs> That's a pretty big bite. And it was all for gold, all for gold. Gold and conquest. But we have to keep on moving on. And that is, what, why are we so bloody confused? Why do we keep making the same mistakes again and again and again? Thinking my happiness comes by going outside, conquering you, getting your stuff, conquering you, getting your stuff, killing you, getting your stuff. You know, when are we going to figure out that that actually doesn't work? You know, it's just more ocean of tears. And then you have to go deeper. You have to go deeper. You have to go down to that deepest level. Even the second one doesn't look like suffering. And that one's everything's going well. It's the American century, the good life. Everybody has their own house with a white picket fence around, and you have two cars in the, autumn, in the garage, the good life, you know? So that's, that's called the suffering of change. Because you don't notice that, in fact, you're depleting all the natural resources of the planet, and that's not going to work out too well. But, you know, that's for the next generation. That's their problem. Sorry, kids, but we really, we really enjoyed lunch. Dining on you. We have to go deeper. We have to keep moving fast now. Our time is running out. That deepest level. Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Because we fail to recognize who we are. 
We grasp under that which we are not, and then we fail to recognize who we are. Dzogchen answer. We grasp under that which is not I or mine, like South America, <laughs> like all the oil in the world, like all the natural resources in the world, and so forth, that which is not I or mine, as being I and mine, or at least it should be, uh, and then failing to recognize who we are. That's the, that's the Dzogchen aspect, failing to recognize who we actually are. We're, it's not just that we're not the body, the mind, and this. It's not just that the chariot isn't this or this or this. But a chariot and a human being are different. Chariot has no Buddha nature. I'm no more, er, I'm no more empty than a chariot. Chariot's emptiness, my emptiness, same. But chariot has no Buddha nature. Cell phone has no Buddha nature. That makes me different. That's why we have Dzogchen and not just Madhyamaka. Madhyamaka, you look into the emptiness of everything, that's fine. But Dzogchen, you're really not that interested in the emptiness of the cell phone. In fact, we'll just get that as collateral damage as we dissolve the entire universe into emptiness. But emptiness imbued with, suffused with hmm, Buddha nature, primordial consciousness. So we've got to go deep, we have to go fast. Life is running out very, very quickly. The planet's running out very quickly. We are approaching crises in every which way. And that's macrocosm and microcosmic. We have to get down to essentials very, very quick, because it would be such a shame to die before getting around to the essentials. Still just messing around with blatant suffering and suffering of change. All very important. And those four million people, they are very important. So I'm so happy. That's being attended to. That's in the headlines. Suffering of change is not in the headlines. And existential suffering, that's just invisible. Because we're not getting to the roots. Materialism will never get you. Materialists would rather have no answer than an answer that is contrary to their beliefs. And that's everywhere. And literally. Materialists would have, rather have no answer about the nature of mind, nature of consciousness, and so forth, than have an answer that would actually make them question their beliefs. That is dominant. It is in academia, in politics, it's in the media, it's everywhere. They are like, like soldiers marching in line. Better to march over the cliff than break ranks and be an outsider, be excommunicated, outcast. This is serious business. This is absolute sabotage of science. That's why, that brings up my wrath, because I love science, but to see sa science sabotage like this, as if materialism is science, as if you can't be a scientist without being a materialist, makes me want to weep, because science has so much goodness to it, so much insight, we've seen it, and that's all I'm going to really emphasize for the rest of the time here, not beating up on this guy, this guy, this guy, but look what they did find. Right? But let's keep on going deep. So here, you become an insider, sooner or later you wake up, and you say, Nobody's ever found happiness that way. If you have 80 billion, you want to have 90 billion. You have this much power, you want to have that much power. You have this much prestige, you want to have that much. And it still doesn't satisfy, and then you may commit suicide. Because it seems hopeless. When you've won, you've lost, you say, oh, screw it. You blow your brains out. So that's where materialism will take you. Either frustration or anxiety. Suffering or disappointment. But you can have your choice. So we wake up, we wake up, and we recognize, you know, the difference between eudaimonia and hedonia, little simple terms, and we become insiders. There are many insider routes, but Buddha Dhamma is one insider route. It is one. Nangba, and then they call it Nangba Sangyeba. Ruaya, Nangba Sangyeba. I'm an insider, comma, Buddhist. If I were a Christian, and I can imagine being a Christian, I would be a Nangba Yeshujulaba. I'd be an insider Christian. 
like Lawrence Freeman and many other Christian friends of mine. He's an insider. He's a monk. No way he's an outsider. He's not looking out. He's a monk. So you're not looking outside for money or wealth or prestige or power. He's an insider. He's my Dharma brother. He's my insider brother. And I have friends of mine who are agnostics and atheists, materialists, and there are some, of, some of them are my insider brothers and sisters. And the outsiders, well, they're just objects of compassion, but with same family, with same sentient beings. And some are more confused than others, that's all. So for those who, as, we, as you turn to becoming an insider, and we have now awareness of so many different paths, there are those, probably like many in this room right now, many people listening by podcast, that among the variety of ways to really seek inner well-being, to become an insider, we encounter Buddhism, the teachings of Buddha, we learn about the Buddha himself, learn about Sangha, some of the great, great masters of Buddhism over the years. And after some time, trust, and that's my favorite word, in this context, trust may arise. In the Buddha himself as an authentic guide to liberation, to awakening, his dharma as the medicine, good medicine, it works, it's, it's real medicine. Trusting it, allowing the full force of your placebo effect to empower it. There's no, no, nothing, nothing wrong in believing in the medication you're receiving. I could imagine you might get a really, really wonderful medi- medication. I mean, seriously. And I bet this has been researched. You could have a type of medication that is absolutely the right one, and you may be totally convinced it won't work. I'll bet you. I'll bet you. That can really diminish the efficacy you can get from medication that is proven to be efficacious. I'll bet you. Yeah? So if that's true for medicine, then the Buddha is the great healer. You're going to get more benefit if you have a lot of confidence, faith, trust. That's not being stupid. That's being smart. Trust and then believe. So you can get maximum benefit from your engagement with the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so... One may become a Buddhist by placing one's trust. One's trust not for one's financial well-being or dental well-being or medical well-being, but for your eudaimonic well-being, for your existential well-being. You may place your lives in trust, trusting the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. That makes you a Nangba Sanghepa, an insider Buddhist, right? Now, within the Buddhist tradition, of course, again, we have choice. It's so wonderful to have choice. We have a lot of choice now, more than anybody's ever had before. If you were born in China 100 years ago and born in a Chinese Buddhist family, you're probably going to be a Chinese Buddhist, probably following what your parents followed, because that's how you honor your parents, follow what they believed, big time. And if you're a Hindu, you know, born in, and so forth and so on. There are people nowadays over the last 100 years who are born into an atheist family, and, you know, if they're good children, they become atheists, because they follow, you know, they don't feel they're in choice, because that's what the parents tell them. If you're not an atheist, you're stupid, stupid. Look at those people praying and offering. I mean, what idiots. And so you're learned. You have the only way, and you can be as intolerant as anybody else. You know. But think you're doing it really rationally. And you're, you don't have, the biggest joke is, you don't have any beliefs. <laughs> what a joke. That's, that's really, that's really, that's maxing out on idiocy. <laughs> but we have choices. So within Buddha Dharma, you can follow the Theravada, you know, the Pure Land schools, the Zen, you don't want, do you want Rinzai, do you want Soto, do you want, which of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism do you like? Within Galupa, do you want to follow Sera, Gandana, Depung, or maybe Dashilumbo? You know, which one do you want to follow? 
and we have choices, right? And so among the big, in the big picture, for though there are some of us who gravitate when we hear of the Bodhisattva ideal, we learn of the life and teachings of Shantideva, the Buddha's own teachings on Mahayana, which we, Mahayana Buddhists, do attribute to him. Nobody less than a Buddha could come up with those teachings. And so then we may then decide, this is where my trust is with all reverence for and respect for the Shravaka ideal of liberation, no harm. That is really ahimsa. I mean, that really is no harm. Not at beginning, middle, or end. It is a non-violent approach. And so, therefore, it's a good. But when we, it's good, but it's not adequate. And therefore, Mahayana. So if you really are, have deep commitment to the Mahayana, to the Bodhisattva path, to achieving enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, then it would make sense not only to take refuge, but take the Bodhisattva precept. You take refuge for life. You say, from now until the end of my life. But then the, the contract is finished. That's it. Because you're, you're taking refuge as a human being, and then you die. You're no longer a human being, and so that contract's finished. Now you're a free agent. In the bardo, you can wander anywhere you like. With no, with no, how do you say, violating your contract, your vow, your agreement with the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, right? As soon as you die, you're a free agent. Be anything you want. Gopher, grasshopper, anything you like. You know? <laughs> of course, if you still take a refuge, and that may connect you with the Buddha, Dhamma, in the next life, that could serve you well. But your contract's only for this. You take the Bodhisattva precept, Oh, that's, from that, that's a much bigger precept. That's why the Bodhisattva vows trump. They overwhelm. They are the, the bigger than the Pratyamoksha vows, the lay precepts, the novice, the fully ordained precepts. And so if there's a question between the two, and I was told this by the junior tutor of the Dalai Lama one-on-one -on -one, when I was a fresh monk, a young monk, and he made it very clear You've taken bodhisattva precepts and monastic precepts. If there's any contradiction between the two, follow the bodhisattva. Now, there, there aren't many, but sometimes it can happen. You say, you follow the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva trumps the, the vows of individual liberation. Yeah? So, you may choose Mahayana. Within Mahayana, there's Sutrayana and there's Vajrayana. Sutrayana makes so much sense. You're recognizing your essential being. You have the potential for a full enlightenment. You roll up your sleeves and say, well, however long it takes, count me in. I'm taking refuge until I, take an, until I achieve enlightenment in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And uh, you cultivate bodhicitta, the six, the six perfections, and just figure, well, it's going to be a long haul, but every single life will be meaningful, and so I've got no complaints. Better to have a whole series of meaningful lives than just be wandering around in circles in misery. And that's a Mahayana. That's a Sutrayana, but then you may encounter, relatively few people do, but you may encounter Vajrayana. And now you say, oh, this is different. This is different. This is for those who have a sense of tremendous urgency. That for myself, fine, three countless eons or whatever, it's all good. It's all good. It just gets better. So really, I'm fine. I'm fine. But then you look around at this world and say, you know, the world's not fine, though. Well, this is just not a fine world. I mean, there's many good aspects, but this overall, we're in very serious shape now. And what we are missing most is not wealthy philanthropists or astute politicians or very excellent military generals, people running businesses and people doing ecology. And we, now, that's kind of, we got that covered. We're, we're strong in many areas. What we're missing right now is Buddhas. 
We need a bit more. Who knows how many there are, but we need a bit more to show their face, to be manifesting, to showing the potential of Buddha nature manifesting in the world so people can see they have choices. Because if we all look just ordinary, if we're all just seemingly doing the same thing, then nobody has any inspiration for doing anything else. Right? If you lived in a country where everybody was poor, nobody would think about getting rich. Whereas if you're living in a poor country where everybody's poor and then a Bill Gates pops up, then on the one hand it's kind of like, well, that's uneven, but whoa, I could become like a Bill Gates? I think I want to. Tell me, Bill Gates, how did you get there? You start seeing, oh, maybe poverty is not the only choice. Maybe I could become rich. Maybe I could be much happier than I am. That's hedonic, of course. But then we need people like the Dalai Lama, who's a Bill Gates of Dharma. Right? He just manifests it every single day. Happily, he's not the only one. Otherwise, we just kind of take him as the one and only Jesus, and we'd all have to just follow the one. But boy, does he ward that off. He wards that off with every might of his being. I am not the one. I am not the one. I'm an ordinary, simple Buddhist monk. I'm not the one. I have no miraculous powers. I get a cold. I can't even cure my cold. You know, he's absolutely warding that off. And he's encouraging everybody, follow your own path and go deeper. But happily, he is not the only one. His two tutors were spectacular. And Gyawakamapak is spectacular. And Jokitijanarmache is spectacular. And the list goes on and on and on. We say, in other words, he was not sui generis, they call it, in a class all by himself. Kamachamadramachi was also said to be emanation of Avalokiteshvara. Kamachamad also. The Kamapa also. And this one, and Yangtanarmachi, said to be an emanation of Vimalamitra. There was Padmasambhava and Vimalamitra there together. These two achieved great transference rainbow body. Who knows how many emanations they have? Gyatradamachi, and he's commenting on him, he says, yes, he is in fact an emanation of Vimalamitra like Penrod Rinpoche was. And Penrod Rinpoche was the head of the Nyingma order right after Jujum Rinpoche. So, oh, he had two at the same time? Come on, give us a break. This is a fully enlightened being. There's no limit to the number of manifestations. How many, how many reflections of the moon can appear in the water be, before the moon just gets drained? And just, I'm sorry, you just can't give anymore. Two reflections, I'm, I'm kind of maxing out here. Two reflections, oh no, three. I, you're sucking the life force out of me, you know. It's, it's just kind of like another pool of water crops up, then there's another reflection, that's it. So there's no limit to the reflections, the manifestations, the emanations, such enlightened beings. But when one has that sense of urgency, then one has to start seriously thinking, how do you contract three countless eons into something short, something that we can really deliver the medicine, the needed medicine now? And the medicine is not just words, because the words are there. The words are there. In the last 50 years, I've watched it go from about a half dozen books to who knows how many, I can't even count them, but it's thousands of really good books. This is just Tibetan Buddhism, let alone Chan and Zen and Theravada and so forth, but just Tibetan Buddhism. 1970, you can count them on one hand pretty much. And now what is it, 45 years later? I can't even count the number. And really good ones. Okay, throughout the, there's about to be some rubbish ones. Okay, th never mind those. But you look at the authors, that's the kind of good way, just like in science. Who's the author? What's your position? You know, what's your CV? Then that already gives you confidence. Well, you, Tibetan Lamas have CVs. They don't write them down, but they do. They do. They're known among their just like physicists. Know who are the really good physicists. It's the same. 
And what everybody, anybody else thinks doesn't really matter. If you're a biologist and you, you don't know, you know what, what doesn't matter. That's not your pipe down. You know, judge a biologist if you can. You know, but this is true. And so, one may then gravitate to Vajrayana. But now it's said in Vajrayana, there is the the gateway. It's, I mean, it's universal. It's true for all of Vajrayana. The the doorway to enter into Vajrayana practice is by way of empowerment. One, Abhisheka. And overwhelmingly, almost without exception, that means you connect with a human being who holds the lineage, holds the lineage of the Wang, holds the lineage of the oral transmission, oral commentary, who is authorized, qualified, and that lineage traces back to the source. So whether it's back to Buddha Shakyamuni, or whether it's tracing back to Saraha, it's tracing back to whoever it may be, it must be an unbroken lineage, and it's the empowerment, oral transmission, and Wang Lung Ti. Empowerment, oral transmission, and commentary. And so the gateway, the doorway to enter into that is by receiving empowerment from a qualified lama who carries the lineage, that blessing. So even if you're a, a karmapa, even if you're a karmapa, the first tuku in Tibet, the young karmapa right now, and there are two, and I have just have nothing to say about that. If there are only two, and just that's, that's the tip of the iceberg. There have to be infinite number of, countless numbers of emanations of karmapa. He's an emanation of, of, of a Lokteshvara. So the notion that, oh, how can we have two, is kind of like, get real. You know? But even the young Kamapa that I've met, I've, met, I've sat next to him a number of times, and he did a little tiny bit of interpreting for him, as I translated once for Gawa, the, the, the previous Gawa Kamapa, translated for once for him in Delhi, but it was just private, one, with one person. So I've, I've had the, the pleasure of then translating for both Kamapa, 16th and 17th, but just very small, very low kid. But even for him, and this is true all over Tibetan Buddhism, and it's true for His Holiness, of course, the Dalai Lama. Fine, you're Avalokiteshvara. Fine, you're the 14th or the 16th or the 17th. But when you're born, you're going to get all the transmissions. The Wang, the Lung, the Ti, you're going to get them all. We're going to bring it in again. We want you to have it fresh. Yes, you have it and you store it in your, in your Dharmakaya, but we're going to bring it in fresh. And then you're part of the lineage. So you're not only your lineage from 16th to 17th Karmapa, but the lineage this way, from your teacher, who's not a Karmapa, probably a disciple of the last one. So you're, you're bringing the lineage this way, vertically, from your past lives. That's a lineage. But you, they want you to connect with this one, kind of ultimate and relative, just loosely speaking. And then you're carrying that torch in both ways, right? So this brings us to the empowerment, not to be very specific. There's going to be an empowerment because it was requested and because I was authorized to give it. That kind of leaves me with no choice. And I also watched because I have to feel very comfortable about it. And I haven't in the past. And so even, I, even though I was requested, I didn't do it and felt absolutely no qualms about not doing it. And this time I feel if I refuse, I think that would be a violation of my samaya. That's it. I mean, I, feel I don't really have a choice at this time. Because I was authorized, because the, because the request, I think, was very sincere by qualified disciples. And then I watched and just saw how many fortuitous circumstances were coming together. It gives me a great sense of ease. So I don't, I'm not sitting here second-guessing myself. Oh, am I up to it? Am I qualified? Oh, maybe I shouldn't, blah, blah. No, I don't. You know, give it a rest. Things coming together from closest disciples of Gautrinabhaji there in Oregon who are living with him, helping in so many ways. The wonderful uh, presence here of Lama Chanjub helping out so much, and Jamie, and Doug helping out, already helping out to make this available. So I feel very relaxed, okay? I feel this has the blessings, the blessings of Padmasambhava. So when it comes to taking empowerment, 
because we need to discuss this, and that will be our morning session. Apart from rare individuals, <laughs> like Dujum Lingba, who didn't have a, didn't, he didn't, I don't think he ever received empowerment or a transmission from any human being. But he didn't need to, because he received all the empowerments, all the transmissions he needed directly from Padmasambhava, Yeshe Sogyo, and then if you look at Buddhahood without meditation, you'll see who his other teachers were. Saraha, Vajrapani, Avalokiteshvara. <laughs> you know, if you have them as your teachers, what do you need somebody walking around with two legs for? You know, so he's fine, but the, the, such people are very unusual, even in Tibet. Very, very unusual. And so, the question to take empowerment or not. There's, let's just take it step by step. Uh, first of all, I'm going to make it very, 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 how do you say, specific to this situation, to this, our retreat here. Uh, I think we've been absolutely transparent, and we continue to be, that is Sangye, I, others who organize the retreat. Uh, this retreat is about focusing on the teachings, you know exactly which ones, of Kamajame Rinpoche, of the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Uh, there's no empowerment in this, in this retreat. There's no empowerment that's part of the retreat. You don't need any. He's already said, here's Avalokiteshvara. If you want to do a sadhana practice, there it is, right in front of you, one page, transparent, beautiful, and we have it from the authority of Kamapakshi, you know, the, one of the great Kamapas. You do not need empowerment for this. That's wonderful. So, no empowerment for this retreat. It's not necessary. It's complete. Monday through Saturday, it's complete. We'll end on a Wednesday or something. It's complete. No empowerment. Not needed, not expected. It's complete. You've missed nothing if you have no empowerment for this retreat. Okay? It has to be completely clear. We're not springing one on you. You know, like you came in, oh, by the way, now that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people could do that, but that's not what we're doing. This is, I'm on call here. Monday through Saturday. Sunday, if I want to take off to Guatemala, I can. I just get a, have to get a real quick return flight. You know, but Sunday, I'm on my own. Sunday, I'm free. Sunday, you know, I mean, if somebody has problems here, of course, I have to be available. But overall, that's my day off. It's your day off, too. So that, that has to be absolutely clear, that this empowerment on Sunday is outside the context of this particular retreat and is absolutely not necessary for this retreat. It has to be absolutely clear that the choice to attend or not is utterly free with no stigma for or, after, uh, for or against at all, not one elementary particle of stigma. If people choose not to come, it is, to say it's perfectly okay is an understatement. Okay? That has to be clear. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't give it. I feel bad. So to take it or not, taking it, well, so that, but that's it for this, okay? That's it for this. Here, it's not part of this retreat. It's on Sunday, which is everybody's day off. It's something outside the continuum of this retreat. Let's now step back to the big question, to take empowerment or not. Well, do you really want to enter Vajrayana? If you don't, don't even think about empowerment. Well, why would you do that? If you have a deeply compassionate sense of urgency in your practice that you want to achieve enlightenment as swiftly as possible, and you have faith in Vajrayana, that this is actually an authentic path, uh, then you would really want to th seriously think about taking empowerment, because they called it Mintyat Wang, the, the empowerment that ripens. The empowerment that ripens. To simply, let's say, visualize Tara in front of you and have devotion and prayers, supplications and so forth, you don't need to have empowerment to focus on 
any of the deities, Buddha Shakyamuni, anybody, Guru Padmasambhava, we've been doing that with no wong, the seven line, you don't need a wong to recite the seven line prayer, right, or even to have that disillusion. Um, but the wong, the empowerment, is really primarily about overwhelmingly about self-generation, dissolving an ordinary sense of identity into emptiness, and arising from that with authentically taking on the identity of, assuming the identity of the yidam in question, whether it's Avalokiteshvara, Tara, and so forth, or Padmasambhava. So the first question would be, is, uh, do you really take refuge in Vajrayana in terms of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha? Do you take refuge as the, in the Buddha as the revealer of Vajrayana? Do you, t- do you take refuge in the Vajrayana Dharma? And do you take refuge in the Vajrayana Vidyadharas, the great masters who've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years? When you look at the lives of the great Mahasiddhas, the great Vajrayana masters, they do, do they inspire you with faith and reverence, confidence, or not? Then if not, then, then relax. You know. But if they do, then that's Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, Vajrayana, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then now to enter into the flow, the continuum, this continuum, Tantra is Gyut in Tibetan, and Gyut means continuum. To enter into the continuum of Tantra, Vajrayana practice, then it turns out to be, again, with exceptions. I love it that there are exceptions, like Dijim Lingma, but they are rare. It turns out to be necessary, you must have a guru. That guru is going to be human being. It's going to have a mummy and a daddy. It's going to have biology like yours, look a lot like you, and it's going to be human. And you're going to dissolve your sense of that person being human into emptiness and see that person as a Buddha. So I've talked about that a lot already, so I don't need to elaborate now. But it needs to be somebody human. And there's one reason, I think, hear my interpretation. There's one reason why. In Vajrayana practice, you must take empowerment and develop the guru-disciple relationship with a human being. Why? Why not just focus on Tara or Vajrapani or Kalachakra or why a human being? Any guesses? There's only, I think, only one answer. I, I get answers by seeing everything that can't be the answer and what's left over is the answer. There's, I think there's only one answer. Why? If I have to focus on a human being who, by the way, does not look like a Buddha, no long ears, no top notch, no none of the eighty, none of the you know thirty-two or major or eighty minor, none, and yet we're still. I mean, if look like a Buddha, that'd be easy. You know, if they all look like that, that's easy. What you see is what you get. But if they look like Padmasambhava or His Holiness or Gyatranambhuji, you see, they don't look the same. Even His Holiness doesn't look like. Not doesn't look the same. And he had, he had a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. And his father traded horses. His father wasn't Samadabhadra. <laughs> he, tra- he traded horses. <laughs> you know. And so why? And I think I have the answer. Why do you need to focus on a human being who actually doesn't look like a Buddha at all? As a Buddha, why is that considered to be so important and to receive empowerment from that person who's not a person but who's Buddha? And there's one simple reason, and that's because you're a bo- because you're a human being, because you think of yourself as a human being, because you're called a human being anyway, and you identify with that. Who are you? Maybe you're Jiang Sim, maybe you're not Jiang Sim. She wasn't Jiang Sim a while back, but now she's Jiang Sim. But before she was Jiang Sim, she was a human being, and she probably took that seriously. Human being. Hmm. Hey, animals, suck it up. <laughs> I'm human being. 
Because you're a human being, you need to take empowerment and develop pure vision with a human being. Why? How are you ever going to be developing pure vision and to break through to your own Buddha nature as a, a living, actual reality here and now, and not simply as a potential? Potential is sh- sure easy. I have the potential to learn Swahili. I think I do. Take a lot of work. But I don't have a little Swahili man inside. I have only potential, but not an actual little Swahili running around in my heart chakra. <laughs> you know. But there is within a Buddha. So how do we open that up and reveal that? Well, frankly, you know, when we look at ourselves, we probably see something that looks like wildly not like a Buddha. But when we look upon a guru who is a lineage and qualified, you say, well, compared to me, you look like a Buddha. Compared to me, the Dalai Lama looks like a Buddha. He's certainly closer to Buddhahood than I am. That's finally all that really matters. Are you closer to Buddhahood than I am? Not are you three galaxies beyond, but are you three footsteps beyond? So now I just bring a tiny bit of my own perspective, because most of what I'm saying is just straight Dharma here. It's a bit of my perspective. Didn't come up. Well, yes, it did. So here's my perspective, and that is when you meet a truly awesome being, such as Yang Tanamoche, who's a Vijayadara, emanation of Vilamamitra, you meet a Kamapa, you meet a Sonid Dalai Lama, you meet Chokitijan Rinpoche, or, you know, Dujum Rinpoche, Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, you meet these awesome beings where you don't have to exercise your imagination a whole lot to think this is a Buddha. Quite a number of people, they meet them and say, you just meet them and say, this is a Buddha. This wonderful Lama, Lama Yeshe up in Scotland, really a, a rascal when he was younger, total rascal. And then he met 16th Kamapa, he said, this is a Buddha. Completely changed his life. Now he's Lama Yeshe Rinpoche, with good reason. But he just met Kamapa, oh, he's a Buddha. So he didn't have to imagine, he didn't have to dissolve and empty and say, oh, you're a Buddha. You're a Buddha already, I don't have to do anything. So that's really inspiring, to just meet someone like a Kalurambache and so forth, and feel, this is Buddha. That's really inspiring. Is there a downside? I think there is a little bit. Not that there's anything wrong here, but when you look upon such awesome beings, and you think, you're a Buddha, that's in stark contrast to your awareness of yourself. Boy, compared to Kamap, I'm a snail. Kamap to his holiness, I'm nothing, I'm a cockroach. Compared to, compared to the ones that I really, really revere, that's a Buddha. Oh man, I'm, I'm dog shit, I'm nothing, nothing. So it's very good for reverence, but then that wasn't actually the point of Vajrayana practice. To look high from a low perspective then that's not Vajrayana, it's called Sutrayana practice. I am a worthy, worthless, cruddy little sentient being, but thank goodness you're a Buddha, I take refuge in you. That's fine, that's Sutrayana though. There's nothing wrong with that, especially if there's no idolatry involved, no reification. But that's Sutrayana. If you keep on taking seriously, I'm so ordinary, I'm nothing, I'm like but you're fantastic, I take refuge, you're the Buddha. So that's a little bit downside. I mean, there's really no downside, but this could come with the come with the territory. If one finds a person a lot like oneself, even similar skin color and language, who's an authentic teacher, that's not so inspiring. <laughs> not, I mean, frankly, let's be real, let's be serious. It's not so inspiring. 
I mean, you're really cool. You know, you're blah, 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 you are whatever. You know, I really like you, you're a really good teacher. But you're really a lot like me. That's not very inspiring. Not like meeting His Holiness, for heaven's sakes. Where when He gives Kala Chakra Empowerment, which He was planning to do this January, for 200,000 people they expected to show up. That's because He's absolutely awesome. And there's this profound connection with Kala Chakra and Shambhala. Right. But if it's not a great Lama, just somebody, you know, village Lama, who looks like you, talks like you, farts like you, you know, it's not so inspiring. You really have to dissolve that one in emptiness. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that's the whole point. You dissolve yourself into emptiness. You don't re- keep and continue reifying yourself as an ordinary schmuck. And then just look upon the, the guru and say, you are fantastic, you're really fantastic, and I'm really a schmuck, I take refuge. That's sweet, but it's not Vajrayana. Because you're not taking the path, the, the, the fruition as the path. So the upside of having empowerment from a person who looks a lot like you, talks a lot like you, doesn't have much better understanding or realization, but is at least like the silly story of the bear, I'm one step ahead of you, and the bear of samsara will get you before me, if it's a couple of steps forward, that's enough. The disadvantage is not so inspiring. (laughs) Really not. But if you can believe, if you can actually dissolve your ordinary perception of that person who's so similar to yourself, right, and actually dissolve into emptiness, and out of emptiness develop pure vision in the sense you're a Buddha, then that's going to make it one heck of a lot easier to do that for yourself. If it's authentic, it really has faith, and that person's just a couple of steps further than you, then when you dissolve yourself after having the empowerment, you dissolve yourself into emptiness and then you arise as Padmasambhava that actually might have some power to it. So the downside, not so much inspiration. Upside, can tremendously empower your practice if you can do it. The upside of taking refuge, taking empowerment from His Holiness, tremendous blessing. He really he is really imbuing, he has realization, he's enlightened. So the blessings are really coming from him right there in the same place at the same time. That's immense. It's fantastic. The Lamas do say if you have a choice of receiving empowerment from a highly realized person, it's versus a person not so much realization. Go for the higher one. They say that. Good. You should. All right? Why? <laughs> Bigger blessing. It's good. But of course, then you have said, but then how? F- but you're so much higher than me as we reify the, the Lama, reify ourselves. So to take empowerment then, we'll run a little bit late today. One should really look what you're getting into, eyes wide open. Just taking Vajrayana empowerment. Like the Bodhisattva precept, it's not just for this lifetime. It's from now until enlightenment. It's not just refuge in Vajrayana. You're getting empowerment from somebody somebody, a person, a person like yourself. And when you're taking this type of refuge and taking empowerment and creating, formalizing this Vajrayana, Guru-Disciple relationship, you're formalizing a relationship and you should do this if and only if. If I, if, if I could make this more emphatic by shouting, I would shout, but I won't. You go for empowerment with an individual if you truly feel 
I would like you to be my guide from now until enlightenment. Now, in the same breath, not exclusive, not if you take refuge with one guru. Oh, like it's not monogamous. It's not that. Never has been. Never. I mean, it happens sometimes. Alit Milarepa and Marpa, maybe that was one-on-one, but by and large, no more. And then you work that out. So what do you do when you have a really authentic, highly realized, like His Holiness or Kamapa and so forth? And then you have the village lama. Well, the natural thing would be incredible reverence for you and thank you a lot, you're swell. But if you do that, then you're not practicing Vajrayana. The chances of you developing pure vision of yourself when you think that one's a real one, the village lama, well, I, get, yeah, I got empowerment. You know, it's just pretty ordinary empowerment. I didn't get much, but, but thank you anyway. I mean, you tried. <laughs> <laughs> if that's where you put your lama, where do you think you've just put yourself? Below the lama, which means you've completely torpedoed your own Vajrayana practice. <laughs> and so when you rise as Padmasambhava, it's a joke. You're, che- you're, you're teasing yourself. You know, and now I'm pretending I'm Padmasambhava. <laughs> so this is why they say, you know, it is true. We're not overlooking conventional reality here. There are lamas with greater realization and less, and right down to the lowest level of qualified. And then there are those who are teaching and sometimes giving not qualified at all. That's true. So you want to make sure there's a cutoff there. You want to check, if you receive Vajrayana empowerment, that the teacher is qualified and the teacher is teaching out of compassion. And somewhat further on the path than you. That's kind of bare minimum. And that the teacher's behavior does not violate Dharma. Talk about sabotage. When Buddhist teachers behave without remorse, without recognition, without acknowledgement, in ways that violate dharma. That's really, that's shameful. That's really shameful. Make mistakes, okay, it happens. Purify them, don't do them again, that's okay. Make mistakes, don't, re- don't acknowledge it, and carry on, that's a problem. So don't follow a teacher like that, be careful. So, this is a big step to take empowerment from Vajrayana, lineage holder. So online, in the supplementary material, I, I, I put a text there last Saturday, just an excerpt from a great yogini in the Jujum lineage, Sarakando, incredible, incredible yogini, Dakini. And her biography has now been published. Very, very good. Very, very good. Really inspiring. She was the consort of the eldest son of Jujum Lingba. But that's of secondary importance. She was a bona fide, incredible Dakini, and Tertun, treasure revealer herself. So she's not just somebody's consort. She's the real thing. And she wrote the definitive commentary to Buddhahood Without Meditation, which I've translated. That's among the three volumes. So she wrote, very succinct, this uh, Fine Path to Liberation, a short text that really covers the outer and inner preliminaries to Dzogchen practice. She covers Guru Yoga succinctly to the point and with tremendous authenticity. So anybody considering taking the empowerment on Sunday, you should study that and see whether that's something you really want to take on. It's not trivial. And I can't do anything about that. I can't say, well, look, you're Westerners, I'm just a Westerner, so you know, we don't have to take seriously because you know, we're going to Western. I can't do that. I have no choice. So I've been giving empowerment. I have to do it as authentically as I possibly can. And the response has to be absolutely authentic. 
because I can't say, well, you're Westerners after all, you know, we'll do, we'll take some, what was that term? Uh, cutting, cutting corners. Well, cutting corners, well, you don't really have to think I'm Buddhist, just kind of pretend or blah, blah, blah. No, I, I can't do that, just I have no choice in that matter. Either do it correctly or you don't do it at all, right? So there has to be that sense. But now I want to add, with great happiness, so an empowerment will be given here, I can say, why? Because it's not part of this retreat. I don't have to say that again. This is a, this is a Lake Buen Vajra, Padmasambhava empowerment. Mm. So if one is drawn to, within Vajrayana, there's so many branches, again, so many choices, you know. But within Vajrayana, if you're really intuitively drawn, Dzogchen is your path. You really, really, that mean, doesn't mean you don't do anything else. You stop your Vajrayana practice, or it never means that, of course, anymore as the holiness stopped with his uh, Gulupa practice when he started taking on Dzogchen practice. Of course not, silly. But it does mean the same thing, trust, faith, this is my path. If you'd really want, you're taking refuge now, you see how we're kind of coming down to a point, to Dzogchen, here's my path. Then it's not necessary, but it would make a lot of sense to take an empowerment of Guru Rinpoche. Not necessary. You can take Vilna Mitra, you can take Yeshikando, you can take, you know, you can take others. But Pampasambhava looms large, very, very large in the Dzogchen coming into Tibet. So if you really are drawn to Dzogchen, then taking empowerment from someone in Guru Rinpoche, taking Dzogchen empowerment, well, makes really good sense. Having said that, within Dzogchen there are many traditions. We have more choices. There's the Kadot lineage, the Piyu lineage, the, you know, the, oh, multiple lineages, schools within. Among them, there's a Dujom lineage. If that's one you're specially drawn to, and again, not exclusionary. I mean, I'm not exclusionary. Gyatrinabhaji is not exclusionary. Yangtrinabhaji is not exclusionary. But if this really draws you, inspires you, since there's the path I'd really like to follow, then getting an empowerment specifically for this Dujum line- lineage, a, an empowerment that was actually written down by Dujum Rinpoche himself, right, of the late born Vajra, and it has to be corresponding to his own vision. It's, it's Dujum Lingba, after all. He wouldn't be making it up or getting it from a book. This was an empowerment that he coined, he, he wrote. He granted it to Gautra Rinpoche, Gautra Rinpoche gave it to me, authorized me to give it, so it's a very short lineage, right? Now, with great joy, I say, ah, but this is Dujum lineage, this is very famous nowadays. I mean, it's well known, Dujum Rinpoche traveled the whole world, many disciples. And there are many Kempos and yogis, you know, great adepts in the Dujum lineage. There are really quite a number. They're in the West, some very good ones in the West. In India, Nepal, Sikkim, Bhutan, Tibet, there are quite a few really qualified lamas. Some women, like, oh, I won't give names, but there are some women for sure, no question. A lot of men, still patriarchal, but really good ones, authentic, and they're giving empowerment. This empowerment or another one, but still the same lineage. So if you really feel intuitively drawn to following the Dujum Lingba lineage, this particular current, for your Dzogchen practice within Vajrayana, within Mahayana, within Buddha Dhamma, then there are a number of very fine teachers. Most are Tibetan, some are Westerner. And they do give this empowerment, this or similar empowerments, quite frequently. So it's not one of those cases, oh, this is incredibly rare, take it on Sunday, otherwise you've missed it, you'll be so full of regret, oh, you'll miss the chance. No, not true. Not true. They're very good teachers. You wouldn't have to wait, wait long. If you skip it on Sunday, Within six months, I'm sure you can find some qualified lama that's giving an empowerment of this lineage. Don't worry. 
you know. Don't worry. It's not that rare. It's very, very precious, but it's not that rare. And of course, many, many lamas, so, so much deeper experience and knowledge in everything than I have. So plenty of opportunities. So no rush. No rush. But if everything seems to be right, aligned, that the person here you regard as qualified, that's not enough. So you have it from Gautrinamache. That's probably good enough. But if you have a sense, you've heard teaching now for some time, if you have a sense the teaching is authentic, if you have a sense that the behavior of the teacher is in, you know, in, in accordance with the teaching, if you feel blessing, you feel benefit, then that's all good. That's all good science. It's all very good. doesn't mean you should take empowerment, but it's good. You know? But if on top of that you feel that kind of trust, that this is a teacher you'd like to guide you through this life and onto enlightenment, then that would be, that would be a reason for taking. But there are so many good reasons not to take it. And if there's any uncertainty, I'd really encourage you, don't. Don't. No rush. No rush. I'm not going anywhere. Not soon. And again, I forgot, I'll go somewhere. No problem. As I just said, there are really a number of lineage holders. When I translated those three volumes, it was with a passionate yearning that Tibetan lamas and other qualified people all over the planet will start teaching it more. They say, oh, now I can teach it in English. So my students can study it when I finish teaching. They're not just left with nothing because they can't read Tibetan. Now I'm hoping you know, many will teach it to us, to people who speak English, whether they're from Poland or South America or whatever, English speakers you know, of the world unite. So, so that's that. And so if, you know, for those listening by podcast, by those listening here, just let it set easy. Set it easy. And if there's some, some sense of uncertainty, I just invite you from the depths of my heart, relax, enjoy Sunday. Just enjoy Sunday, have a day of practice, and relax and be happy. With no sense that you've missed something important. I'll just say that a hundred times, it will be more helpful. If there's some sense of uncertainty, maybe not this lineage, maybe not this teacher, maybe not this time, maybe not that emanation of Padmasabha, maybe, maybe not, then just relax and be happy and just practice. But if there's no uncertainty, if it's all clear, and a sense of ease, total ease, and a sense of trust, then you're welcome to come. As for final thing, we've gone on. As for final point, uh, a very good question that I always want to know, because I have a lot of opportunity to re- receive empowerments too. I haven't taken many for a long time now. I don't want more commitments. I don't want more. I, I love Dharma. I, I want to practice Dharma because I love Dharma, not because I have made a commitment that I have to. I felt that way for a long time. That's why I stopped taking empowerments a long time ago. Unless they had a tiny commitment, I wouldn't take them, even if it's a great lama. It's only Dalai Lama's giving very, very profound empowerment this December. Uh, it's just like the, really profound. I know he's given. I've not received the empowerment. I'm not going to go. He's my rude lama. I'm not going to go. I don't want another commitment. When I'm, I do my commitments. I do it regularly, all the time. Because I made a commitment, but all the rest of my practice I do only because I love it, not because I have to. I don't have to do any more practice. I have to do about half an hour a day. I kept it really small, 
long time ago I decided, I don't want more. I don't want to practice Dharma because I have to. That was a long time ago, 1978, when one great Lama was giving one empowerment after the other, and I went to Geshe Rapten, who was there. I said, Geshe La. I told him, and I was translating for the Lama's giving the empowerments, Zonar Maji. He's giving, giving one empowerment after another, great Lama. I went to Geshe, my Geshe Rapten, who was, you know, my close guide. I said, I don't want to receive any more. I don't want to receive any more that I have to do, that I'll have to do this sadhana for the rest of my life. I've got enough that I have to do. I said, okay. That was, that. that was easy. That was a simple conversation. Okay. I can still translate for the Lama, but I'm not taking the empowerment. So I don't want more commitment. So we'll have this empowerment on Sunday. What's the commitment? There is a sadhana. It's about one page long. It's about exactly as long as the, the Avalokiteshvara sadhana that we have in Space of Path to Freedom. Just about the same. Same degree of complexity. That is not at all. Very simple, right to the point. Lake Born Vatra, speech, empower, speech embodiment of Padmasambhava, powerfully linked with this Dujum Lingba whole lineage, the five, the five treatises. Uh, so for those really drawn to those, this is a very, very good empowerment to receive. It's so intimate, it's so close. This is the speaker of these tantras, of these, of these treatises. Uh, so it's a very short sadhana. And reciting it, practicing it every day is not a commitment. When I received it, it was not a commitment. I wouldn't have minded, actually, but it wasn't a commitment. So I'm not going to make it a commitment. Gatrin Mbushi doesn't actually do that. So it's not a commitment. The short sadhana is already translated, and anybody who comes, of course, now you'll be empowered to practice it. It's a beautiful practice, and I do it a lot, but not every single day. Because sometimes I have just other things that I think are more important to do with my free time. I don't do it every day. When I do it, I love to do it. But I don't do it when I feel, oh, I have to do it. And I, don't do it. I never do it that way. This is love. This is not a commitment. I do it because I love to do it. Yeah? So there's only, so as Gandhantuga Rinpoche, one of the, you know, one of the premier lamas of all of Bhutan, great, the greatest dirturn of, the emanation, body emanation of the greatest dirturn of Bhutan, Bemalingba. He's one of my lamas. I've received empowerment from him. In Santa Barbara, we invited him there. One of the joys of my life to have him there. And he said at the end of his Dzogchen empowerment, there's one Samaya for this empowerment, one commitment you have. Do not look outside yourself for the Buddha. That's it. Bye-bye. You know. And as much as, in terms of the practice, do as much as you wish. Do as much as you can. Do as much as you'd love to. So that's what I say for the empowerment on Sunday. There's a short sadhana, and then in preparation for this, uh, the empowerment, then I'm looking at the longer sadhana and getting familiar with it. I haven't done it, the short sadhana. I always like short rituals so I can have big content rather than big ritual and short content. I've just heard too much of that, you know. Like a bunch of frogs croaking at a pond. <laughs> I just have no patience for empty rituals. So I'm going to take a short one and have it full rather than the big one and have it empty. Or just as full as the short one. <laughs> you know? So I'd rather have a little cup full of milk than a big pot with only a little bit of milk in the bottom. Okay. But again, looking through the longer, it's not that long. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. I've just been looking through it, so I'm familiar with it. I'll practice it on a Sunday. It's beautiful. So I kind of think I probably need to translate that. 
I don't need it, but you know, for people who don't read Tibetan. So that'll be available. But that's it. So in terms of commitment for the empowerment, uh, having an utter sense of ease and certainty, right teaching, right empowerment, right time, right place, right sangha, everything's right, and that trust. And if it's not just perfect, just relax. Don't come. That's my request. That's my request. I'm, I'm doing it only because I have com- actually total certainty. It's okay. It, it'll be fine. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. That's why I didn't do it in the past. Uh, uh, maybe not. I don't think so. No, not especially. I don't know. No, I'm not going to do it. I, and I don't mind if I never do it. I really have no, no, I have no problem whatsoever never giving empowerment. I've received plenty. That's enough. I have no need to give empowerment. Nothing I need at all. But I've been given it. So just like when Geshe Rapton told me I should start teaching when I was 26. I had no choice. Gajaramaja didn't tell me you must give empowerment, but he gave me permission. And then when that comes together with requests by people who are worthy, then once again I have no choice. So is that all clear? All clear? Good, good. I want it to be transparent. Going into an empowerment, not knowing what the commitment is and so forth, I find that kind of not fair. Like, we shouldn't really have to have blind faith any time in Buddhism, from now until enlightenment. That's so just not, so not the way the Buddha taught. That we should go in with eyes open, really clear. You're stepping across, you're not stepping into a mystery, into a dark room. You're stepping into a room that's always full of light, already full of light. Where you know this is refuge, this is trust, that you can relax here. And you can practice well. And your guru, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, your fellow Dharma friends are all here to support you. And it's that simple. So, I hope that was enough. Is that enough? It's all clear? That whatever decision you make, whether here or by listening to my podcast, is with utter ease, with utter ease, with no sense of anxiety, nothing at all, knowing that it's equally fine. This is equally pure, equally fine for everybody, whichever way you go, but have that sense that has that sense of ease, of confidence, trust. Trust yourself not to come, if that's where your heart, or not to come, well, yeah, not come, trust that. If that's the impulse, trust it, good. After all, you're taking refuge in Buddha nature, after all, no matter what you do. So trust that impulse, maybe not right now. Good, trust that. Yes, certainly, this is the way to go, then trust that. Because finally you're trusting your Buddha nature no matter what. Well, that's all. This is all about compassion all the way through. This is all a compassion meditation. Because the only reason to take empowerment at any time, in any place, with any Lama, is out of compassion for all sentient beings. And if that's not the overwhelming motivation, the sense of urgency, the sense that really we need to get our acts together, we need to proceed along this path and achieve enlightenment as quickly as we possibly can. If that's, on, if that's not the motivation, there's no reason whatsoever to come for an empowerment. Stay home, relax, enjoy your life, enjoy your dharma. Right. So this is all about compassion. This was not kind of going here and there in this little talk, starting, at, starting with ISIS and so forth. That was one talk. That was one talk. It was all one piece. And they all talk to each other. Yeah. It's for the sake of healing this world. 
also. So, the um, morning, so, so just for the people here, the morning interviews will start exactly 20 minutes staggered late. So, see, see the first one in 10.20. And go to your meditation practice, the, the compassion, do as you've done before. Expanding field, expanding field, and practice Donglen. Draw in the darkness of suffering and all the causes of suffering. Dissolve it into your heart. And that means every negative thought about you have about anybody. ISIS, relatives, enemies, everything you've seen terrible in the world, all the mental afflictions of the world, all the suffering in the world, every negativity you've projected on anybody in your life, take it home, reel it in, because this is where it came from, is your world. Reel it in, purify your world. Draw it all in and extinguish it in an infinitely greater light at your heart until all that's left is pure vision, outside and inside. Purify the world, purify your mind. That's the practice. Okay? Good. See you later. <laughs>